right, well, welcome. This morning, we're finishing up our series on finishing well. So we're finishing, finishing, um, double finishing day. Uh, hopefully, you had an opportunity to get a handout. Um, if, if you'd like to jot stuff down, you're welcome to do that. It's a, it's a pretty basic handout, pretty much because I wasn't sure what I was going to say when I made it. And so, um, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, but I know what I'm going to say now, at least, I think. There's um, a bit of material to cover, and so um, I'm, I'm going to just dive right in. We've been talking in the Finishing Well series about how to steward our latter years of life well before God. The last few weeks, we've been seeing how beauty and glory still remains throughout the changes of life and the changes of aging. And today, in particular, we're going to talk about how that relates to our minds. Um, there we go. Um, the glory of aging minds. And so what, I, what we'll be thinking about in a nutshell is how do we view um, ourselves and others when our cognitive abilities decrease and uh, when we deal with something like dementia in particular. Um, a few caveats just to begin. Um, one, I won't be able to do this justice at all in one week, and there will be other things we'll come back to at other times. And so um, I'm just saying that to get myself off the hook so I don't just try and talk too fast. Um, I'm going to try and point out some helpful things that I think can get the conversation started for us or categories we can think in that, to be honest, I think we'll be, we'll be thinking about until glory. Um, also, second disclaimer, um, I'm not sure how I'll make it through this. Um, it's kind of, it, it's a personal topic for, for Darcy and for me. Um, many of you may know her mom is struggling with Parkinson's, and the way that it's exhibiting itself in her life is primarily mentally, um, less so with bodily um, shakiness. And so, it's something that we've been thinking about. How do you know and love someone through um, those changes? Also, just difficult stories of brothers and sisters that we love, as this is a common experience, and actually a very common experience in people's lives. And we think of the memory care saints over at the Meridian and just many other brothers and sisters dealing with a difficult struggle. So as those things come to mind, uh, I haven't worked on this once in the last few weeks without just bawling in my office. So I'm going to try and not do that here, but I'm just warning you just so, I don't know, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. We'll see. Everyone good? <laughs> so um, most of the material from what I'll be mentioning today um, comes from this book by John Swinton. Um, you may know of him from um, the book Finding Jesus in the Storm. Uh, that's the title of a, a group that Ryan leads, and um, he's just a thoughtful writer. Swinton worked for many years as a psychiatric nurse and chaplain. He's also an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland, and he's a professor of practical theology at the University of Aberdeen. And he's a Christian who's just thought profoundly about these things. And as you can tell, like, this is a thick book, and it's not a, a light read. Um, there's really good stuff in here, but I'm just distilling just a few things that he says so much more about. Um, and we could always talk about other resources as well. Um, I think it's helpful just to begin by talking about what dementia is, just defining terms a little bit. And just so you know, I'm not a doctor, and this is not a medical class. And so I'm just giving high-level overview here just so we can be thinking in the categories. But if you look on the CDC website, they have this definition that's shorter than some others. Dementia is not a specific disease, but is rather a general term for the impaired ability to remember, think, or make decisions that interferes with doing everyday activities. Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. Though dementia mostly affects older adults, it's not a part of normal aging. There are many who can complete their aging years without experiencing dementia. I think what's also helpful to realize in, in this definition, and then you, know, you could do the ICD or the DSM, um, the overall category of a decrease in the ability to think and remember because of the effects on the brain. And it's the overall syndrome, and then there are different types or different causes that are listed there. Um, Alzheimer's being a subset of 
the class of dementia then. So you see Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia often occurring because of strokes, whether small over time or large ones. The others you can look into and, and learn about as needed, but just kind of wanted to orient us to that just a little bit. Um, I realized I didn't pray to start, so why don't we pray, and then we'll dive into now kind of thinking theologically and pastorally about these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, how well you know us, and how you're with us in every struggle that we face through our Lord Jesus and by your Spirit. We pray that you'd help us as we think about these things today. Encourage us from your word and from the way you've made us um, to better understand who you are and how confident we can be in your love. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's think for a little bit about dementia and, and personhood. And um, studies have found that dementia is the most feared illness among people in the West in particular. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, cancer causes the most concern. Dementia evokes fear. I think that's interesting. Why, why is that? I think part of the reason dementia is so feared by unbelievers and believers alike is because it causes questions for us that intersect with the core of our personhood. Um, there's something deeply profound about wondering who we are when we can't remember. Um, what kind of person are we? How much of us is still there when our cognitive functions decrease? Um, Pat Robertson, um, several years back on his show, The 700 Club, he was asked by a caller about a friend whose wife had dementia and who no longer recognizes him. So someone called in and um, the caller told Robinson, Robertson that his wife, as he knows her, is gone and that his friend is bitter at God for allowing this to happen. And Pat Robertson then responded to this caller. And the reason I'm bringing this up is um, I think it's helpful to realize that a lot of times the way we speak about and frame up dementia and memory loss is actually very inconsistent with how God views us and with a real theology of personhood. That's essentially today in a nutshell, but I'll just unpack it in various ways. And so Pat Robertson kind of represents this as, uh, listen to his counsel, he told um, the caller that his wife, as he knows her, well, sorry, I, I jumped to the wrong thing. He said, I hate Alzheimer's. It's one of the most awful things because here's the loved one. This is the woman or man that you have loved for 20, 30, 40 years, and suddenly that person is gone. Now, that's good and pastoral, right? In the sense of empathizing with the feeling of what's taking place. But notice what he goes on to say. It's more than just lamenting the loss of the memories you have with the person or how the relationships changed. He says, I know it sounds cruel, but if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again, but to make sure she has custodial care and somebody looking after her. And so during this, his co-anchor was like, hey, wait a minute, let's, we're on TV, let's bring this back, and said, yeah, what about marriage vows, though? And he said, yes, it is still to death do us part, but this is a kind of death. That's interesting, right? The person is still alive. The wife is still alive, um, still with him. But Robertson is saying that the way we view her is that she's dead, and theologically, even, she should be treated as such. Um, if Christians speak about it this way, then it's not surprising that non-Christians can go even further than this. It's, it's problematic as well. Um, but Baroness Mary Warnock, one of Britain's leading moral philosophers, uh, a non-believer, has said, this. She was doing an interview about Alzheimer's, dementia, these types of issues. She says, the real fear I think shared with nearly everyone is that I become demented. I've left instructions that if I contract pneumonia or something that I'm not able, um, that I'm not to be given antibiotics, but there's not much else I can do. If you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the National Health Service. She goes on, then she was asked about euthanasia uh, in these cases, um, either being chosen or, or not chosen. And she says, why not? 
because the real person has gone already, and all that is left is just the body of a person, and nobody wants to be remembered in this condition. So you see that the problem there is that the real person is gone already. Um, now, anyhow, I'll just keep moving because I think as we move it, it answers things. Um, we talked back in, in Glory Lost and, and thinking, thinking about beauty and the bodies and aging, we talked about selfie beauty and how the, the problem with it is it's incomplete. It has too small of a definition of what, where beauty and glory is in the body of a person. Um, that is especially the case when we think about personhood um, as a category, as a society. When it comes to personhood, the, the box is even smaller. Um, we live in a society and in a world and in a culture of hypercognition, um, which just means there's excessive emphasis on intellect and cognition, especially in terms of what makes a person valuable. And we also live in a culture of hypermemory. There's emphasis on what a person can remember as being very key to um, who the person really is. I'm going to move through this really fast. And so you could just zone out if you want. And if it's interesting to you, we can always talk more later. But I realized I have too much. But if we wonder why this is, it's because for a long time, we've been philosophically operating with a mind-body dualism. Ever since Descartes, um, I think, therefore I am. It, the emphasis of personhood has been placed in this upper tier of our minds where there's a free, autonomous self, and we're viewed as operating within a machine of a body that's just operating by natural laws. And out of that comes then personhood theory. And personhood theory is everywhere in terms of our ethics of the day. And what it's saying is that being a human just means that you have a body, that lower tier. You have an expendable biological organism just like the animals do. But what's really important and what gives you moral and legal standing is if you're in the upper tier of being in some way a person. And so there's this distinction, not all humans are persons. And so then we have to come up with moral criteria of what a person is. We'll skip what John Locke had to say, but we can just summarize it this way. A person in our society tends to be defined by these things, intellect, cognition, memory, sense of self, self-awareness, ability to value life. This is what's in the air of ethical conversations. What it means then is there are a lot of humans who are not persons and who do not have the rights of persons. What's also interesting is how logically it doesn't totally make sense because according to definitions like these, we all become non-persons while we're asleep. And so it'll be interesting to see if we're allowed to just kill each other when we're asleep someday. Um, but anyhow, that's, I don't know how funny that is, but it, it's an interesting thought, right? And so as we think about this, this personhood theory, uh, I think we fundamentally know something's wrong with it, especially as we think as Christians about beginning of life issues, right? Um, the whole support for, not the whole, but a major argument ethically for support of abortion lies in personhood theory, where the human fetus is, yes, a body, an organism, but not yet a person. And it's not until being on the other side of birth or different cognitive abilities develop that that person, that that human is then given the status of a person. And Peter Singer, the Princeton ethicist, even goes so far as to say, hey, a three-year-old toddler, it's still a gray case if they're a person or not. Um, you know, they're still not functioning on these levels that personhood clearly is. And so they don't deserve moral protection. I think as Christians, we know something's wrong with that, right? The problem is, I think we often don't connect that with end-of-life things as clearly for us. We may know that a person is still a person, and that's why euthanasia is not okay at the end of life. But we may have questions about how much personhood still remains when a person can't remember. 
And I'm not talking here about persistent vegetative states. We'll just like set that as an ethical question aside, but we'll talk more about someone who's functioning and yet in cognitive decline, particularly through dementia. We'll just keep focused on that. Um, and so we have to think about that, right? And so let's think about biblical personhood. If you're following along on your sheets, um, I think that was all introduction and now we're on the inside first page. Is that right? Or no, we're on the inside second page. Great. So don't worry about writing anything down. It's, uh, but you can do what you wish. Biblical personhood is not capacity-based. Biblical personhood is creation-based. All humans are persons because they're created in the image of God. And that's very different. Um, Swinton summarizes it really well. As members of the human race, all of us are by definition persons. Personhood is not a set of capacities, and it's not simply standing that is bestowed upon someone by others, which would be a social dynamic of personhood. I see you as a person, and therefore you are a person. It is an irrevocable status that comes from being a human being. So as, as people, we're created in God's image, and therefore we're persons, and then there's all these aspects of personhood that come from being persons, but we don't have to have those things to be persons, right? Like cognitive abilities and relationships. Um, those are all part of what being a person is, but as those things morph and change, our personhood is not going up and down. It is a status bestowed by being an image bearer. Um, and so especially as believers, we, we really come to see that. And so listen to how different this is than personhood theory or mind-body dualism, or I think because I am, right? These, he gives these declarations of all these different ways personhood is explained. The declaration, and here's the Christian one, I am because I am created, dependent, gifted, and loved in all circumstances and for all time. Uh, that is what's true of every human in some way, every person in some way. It's very different from, I think, therefore I am, or I am because of what I can do, or even I am because of how others choose to relate to me. See how image bearing is the handle that we really need. And why this is so important, the, the reason we're just going through this on the front, and, and I'm also kind of flying through it, is because what it means for us then as we think about the potential of experiencing dementia in our own lives, and as we think about loving other people who are going through dementia, what we fundamentally have to understand is that personhood is not diminishing in this. Um, aspects of ourselves are changing, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is very important. It's important legally, and this can get complicated, um, who, who's the one who's legally responsible as this person's memory is changing. The Daily just did a, an hour-long episode interviewing these daughters whose mom got dementia and then fell in love with another man and then no longer wanted to have a relationship with the daughters. And so legally, what's happening? And they're fighting that out in the courts. Those are complicated things. It's, um, and it, there are complications ethically, but it's extremely important for us to keep personhood to the fore theologically and pastorally. And pastorally, I don't just mean as a pastor, but I mean as we one another care each other through this. We have to think well about it. So, um, you know, we talked last time about the blue light being the things that give us the blues or the aspects of life that are glory lost. Um, there is a strong component of blue light in dementia. Um, there are many losses. And, and Swinton talks about that. He says, dementia may be a story of great losses, but the fullness of the personhood of sufferers and God's faithful love for them are not part of the loss. Um, and that's important for us to understand. So, so part of the challenge for us as believers then is what it is in the weeks we've been talking about before, but it's so acute here, is to see the green light of the glory that still remains in the person who's an image bearer, even when their cognitive abilities are changing. What signs of the glory of God in his creation are still there even though they're changing? 
and also to see the red light, right, of God's redemptive ways, what he's still doing in the lives of the people who are experiencing it as they're still held in his love and care, and also the red light of what he's doing in us as we are encountering these things that cause us to think so much about who we are and who God is. And so um, I just want to talk now. That's kind of the, that, that's the bringing us up to speed about personhood matters to see the glory that's there. And then I just want to talk about two aspects of it. And this is all still on that page three. Um, aspects of how does it relate to who I am in myself and how does memory function in this? And then we'll flip to the back page and talk about a community of care. Um, and part of the reason I'm moving so quickly is I think as we move toward these later things, it comes together and I think is where it's almost most edifying. Is everyone doing okay so far or anything I need to just, yeah, okay. Tom's like, stop caveating. No, thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> Let me take a drink real quick as we raise a nice, easy question. Dementia raises profound questions about our identity. That's why it's so scary. Um, am I still me when I've forgotten who I am? Um, what is true about me as I feel more and more like a stranger to those who love me? Um, and when I often see them as strangers, even though we have years of history and love together? It's a profound question. Um, before I say that, what I want to do is twofold. When we think about self, I just want to show you that our conception of self is too small, and that's what makes it so scary. And so just to, dis just to put chinks in that armor without a complete understanding of selfhood, I mean, it's, it's actually a mind-boggling category. So I'm just putting chinks in that theory, and then I'm bringing it to what the Bible says about self, which is where we find our comfort. And then we'll do the same thing with memory. Um, so if it doesn't all make sense, or if you're like, I don't feel like this is a complete theology of selfhood, I'm just putting chinks in it a little bit. Our concept of self has been affected by this mind-body dualism. We place self squarely in the realm of the mind. It's that small box. We are this, and if, if you think about what's being expressed in all the songs and all the movies and what's just everywhere, is it's who you are is this inner thing that only you know, and as you come to find it, you must express it, and that is pursuing the true and authentic self. It's, it's described as expressive individualism. Um, I'll read this because I think it's helpful. The view that you are who you feel yourself to be on the inside, and that acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. Do you see the problem with expressive individualism? It raises tons of problems, but the problem that it raises with personhood is if you can't remember who you are on the inside, then yourself is gone, right? Um, who you feel yourself to be, that's the main thing. Let's put some chinks in that. Self is bigger than that. Self is, our concept of self is actually very porous. Uh, it's described in expressive individualism as it's this container that you almost have from birth and nothing can touch it. You just need to find it and express it. That's not how ourselves actually work. Um, it's much more porous. Things come in and out and things go in that we respond to that shapes our understanding of who we are. Our self is shaped by experience. Think about how we begin as babies. Um, a baby's fir first experiences the world, right? Things happen. The baby cries and laughs and fusses at experiences. And as she grows up, she's taught to conceptualize those experiences with language, right? Language comes to her from the outside, from others, and it teaches her that what you just did when you cried was you expressed something that was caused by pain. And what you just did when you laughed was expressed something that's caused by pleasure. But the meanings of pleasure and pain um, is very culturally shaped. It's coming to us from others outside of us. What might be profoundly painful in one culture socially 
maybe, and we can even see this in various homes, right? In some homes, you grow up in teasing pleasure. In other homes, you grow up teasing pain, right? So which, do you have different selves? Like what's happening there? There's this um, input from others that is helping us understand our selfhood of what we think about these things. Who we are is shaped by what we experience, and it's shaped by the words and the values that we are given to by others for that experience. Our self is also shaped by other people um, and our relationship with them. Selfhood could be defined like even on three levels. One level, it's just that I am an I that exists in the world. I know that I'm an I and that you are not I. Um, and really, in dementia, that remains all the way through, unless someone is um, perpetually unconscious. We're aware of the fact that I am an I in some way, and that's part of our selfhood. Another aspect of self includes things about us that we know and things that we value. I am married. I have these skills. I like these things. Some of those things diminish in the course of um, dementia. Some of them come and go. But there's also another aspect of self that's not only your awareness of those things, but how those things actually exist in the world. Meaning this, you, your identity, part of it is you are a dedicated teacher. You are a fun-loving friend. You are a deferential child. You are a romantic spouse. You are a nurturing parent. Does your awareness of that necessarily take that aspect of yourself away? that's been ingrained through relationship with other people that they still know that is part of what your identity has been and even is. Part of our selfhood is very dependent upon others. You can't be a fun-loving friend without friends. You can't be a dedicated teacher without having students around you. Other people, all I'm trying to say is this, our self is porous, not this impermeable box. And other people play a role in our selfhood. And so our self is shaped by experience, it's shaped by others, and our sense of self changes. This is part of what it actually is. It's not just locked away in a, in a box. In um, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he quotes Lewis Smedes, and I, I just love this quote. It made me laugh, and then it's like, oh, that's for real. Um, my, he says, my, life, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. Uh-oh. And each of them has been me. And he's just reflecting on the fact who we are changes so much throughout the duration of our lives that sometimes we wonder, was that even me? Um, and this can change drastically just on different perceptions. Think of who you saw yourself to be before you became a Christian and who you saw yourself to be after becoming a Christian. It's not just in some little box locked up somewhere that never changes. Um, our self is not just some inner thing that we can lose with loss of memory. It's something that grows and develops through experience, and it's shaped by language. There's a sense in which we don't even really know who we are. And if you say that in today's expressive individualism as, <gasps> How can you ever live authentically if you don't even know who you are? Where does scripture take us? Scripture gives voice to this. It's a, it, it flat out tells us the heart, which has aspects related to it of our selfhood, right? Self-understanding. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I do not know my own heart. Far less do I even know your heart. Um, but... I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our confidence doesn't come from the fact that we fully know and actualize our inner selves. Instead, God says the most amazing thing. O oh Lord, you have known me. You have searched me and know me, known me. And then if you think of the context of Psalm 139, it's all occurring while we as a person in our mother's womb have no self-awareness of who we even are. But God knows who our true self 
is. And from, and this changes throughout our lives. Um, Swinton's friend Brian Brock summarizes it this way so well. God always knows who we are, and we are always only partially understanding who we are. That's part of what it means to be a creature right now. On such a view, dementia is just another stage in a totally dynamic process of the God-human relationship in which God is leading us into our true selves, and we are always only grasping this in bits and pieces. See, it's another stage where God, who knows who we truly are, is leading us to one day experiencing the fullness of who we are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And then he says this profound thing, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows our self as we actually are. Um, and we are just vacillating through an experience of it in time. And so selfhood um, doesn't completely go away with loss of memory. It's bigger than that. And our hope isn't that we can remember and actualize ourselves. Our hope and comfort is that God knows us. But that also leads to another aspect as we think about memory, right? Um, one of the most concerning things about dementia is not only the loss of identity, but the loss of memory and kind of how those two relate. And this gets framed up in very unhelpful ways. Um, on Christian sources and secular, I'll, I'll just read a secular source. The famous Spanish filmmaker Luis Bunel said, um, you have to begin to lose your memory if only in bits and pieces, listen to this, to realize that memory is what makes our lives. Life without memory is no life at all. Just as an intelligence without the possibility of expression is not really an intelligence. Do you see these ontological, these personhood statements that are being made here? Our memory is our coherence, our reason, our feeling, even our action. Without it, we are nothing. That's what we are absorbing all the time. And it also gives voice to our experience. There are things on an experiential level that that's giving words to. The problem is when that becomes ontological, or the problem is when that experience is what defines reality for us. Um, how can we, there, there's another layer to memory for us as Christians, isn't there? It's not only forgetting our family, Yeah. But the, the saddest thing <laughs> in talking to other believers is the fear, what if I can't remember God? <clears throat> How do we function as Christians when we can't remember the creeds? When we can't remember what we read in our Bible that day? When we can't remember how to read in the first place? How can we pray when we can't remember Jesus' name or what to pray for? And it leads to very pragmatic questions. Is my mother really saved even though she's forgotten who Jesus is? Uh, I'm not saying that autobiographically. It's a question. What does it mean to love God when you've forgotten who God is? You see why it's scary. And so we just have to think a little bit about memory. And again, I'm just it's way more complicated than this. We often think of memories like accessing um, a recording on a tape or a hard drive, right? We just think of our brains as computers and they store videos and audio clips of everything that's happened. And when we remember, we go back and we just access that perfectly recorded clip. That's not how our memories work at all. It's way more complicated than this. We're still figuring out a ton of it. Um, but just a few things. Our memories of an event are deeply and profoundly shaped by our own perspective and how it felt as we endured it. It's not just some completely accurate recording. It's shaped by our embodiment at the time. 
um, our memories are reshaped as we remember them at different stages of life. We don't go back and access the original video when we remember. We go back and access our last memory of the memory. And um, at least that's what studies are saying now. And so you can see that on an experiential level. John Swinton talks about when he remembers his father's death. He's not remembering back to the original moment when he heard the news that his father was dead. He's re-remembering his death. And as time passes, the emotional content of that memory changes. And um, that's, that's probably why we can say there's truth to the fact of like time bringing healing. Some of that is the memory process as emotional distance happens in the recalling of memory, which is just fascinating. It's probably better to think of our memories as jigsaw puzzles than to think of them as pictures or um, tape recordings or a video on a hard drive. And so it's just much more profound. And so memories are profound, but then also this. Memories also, again, we think memory is only in here, and if it's not happening in here, memory itself is gone, and therefore personhood is diminished. Your memory also has external aspects to it that we often don't think about. Every time we take notes at a lecture, like you're, you're writing notes down at a boring lecture, um, or a shopping list, what are we doing? We're actually grafting in external aspects of memory. We're having tools that assist in the remembering of things. We remember not just through what's stored here, but we also access external means. And our memories have a communal aspect to them. This is one of the most beautiful things, I think, in thinking about what we can do as people. But others hold our memories for us. We don't just hold them in our minds. What do I mean by that? There are many things about yourself that you experienced that you don't remember. You think of your past. Like when I think of my past, I can think of events that happened, good ones, bad, all kinds of things. It's a, it's a thing. I remember things, but you know what? My mom and my dad, they remember things I don't remember happening. And what happens? They tell me about those things happening, and I graft them into my story, and they become a part of my memory, even though I didn't internally remember them. Others have held that memory. It's an external holding that becomes internal. Do you see how, like, porous and, and complicated the whole thing is. And so what's the point of all this? And, and that's just, anyhow, it's just this. Memory is more than just what we can remember in the moment. And that's what our society places all of its value on. One of the things that's, that's so sweet to me, but I, I wish I could just alleviate the discomfort, is in the body of Christ, having people of all different ages, as some of us are growing older, remembering is getting harder, right? And what comes with that? So much apology. Oh, I can't remember. It was there a second ago. And I, I understand the giving voice to the experience of it and that that's hard. But you do not need to apologize for that. This is part of our creaturely experience. And memory is more than just you're getting slower at being able to recall facts and names. Um, there's, there's so much more to us than just how much do we function like a computer. And unfortunately, that's kind of the standard that's held out for us. Um, memory is complicated. Um, Beth, is it okay if I mention just what you had shared? Beth mentioned, and I, I'd love to hear so much more about this, but I think it's just helpful to say. Um, she was telling me last week, it was actually as her father's memory was affected, and was it by Alzheimer's? Dementia. As his mind was being affected by dementia, it was lessening his grasp on memories that kept him from the faith, and it opened up the path for him turning to Christ in faith. Memories are complicated things. Um, ultimately, our hope is not in our own memory that we can remember God. Our hope is ultimately in God's memory. And I think it's important just to think about God and memory for a moment. God's memory is a lot different than ours. Um, first of all, 
It's not neurological. God doesn't have a brain. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Don't you think from A Wrinkle in Time that he's probably just a giant brain? Um, Dallas Willard once said, for God, everything is a no-brainer. <laughs> but I'm ching. Um, but just, whoa, as soon as we realize that, we realize that our concept of memory is by way of analog, like it's analogous to and it's in accord with, but it's, it's different. God's memory holds and remembers us as we actually are, which is different from our memories that often think of ourselves as who we presently feel or what we have been. That's why Psalm 139 is so powerful. You've searched me and you know me. He knows who we actually are and that who we actually are will be realized in glory, right? Like we will come to experience the fullness of this. God's memory is also portrayed in scripture as sustenance and action. What that means is this. If you look up the concept of God remembering, part of what it means is when God remembers something exists and when God forgets, it ceases to be. We think about this about God not remembering our sins anymore. They're forgiven. They cease to be in relationship against us. Psalm 88, 5, those who are in the grave are those of whom of whom God no longer remembers. Um, and so when God remembers us, we exist. And that's really amazing news. And we exist as we actually are. Um, he says, and what's amazing is God says remembering us is actually something he loves to do and he promises to do. Psalm 8.4, what is man that you are mindful of him? Mindful there is the adjective of the verb remember. What are people that you remember them? And he goes on to say it's, it's too lofty for me to even understand. God remembers people and he promises to remember us. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Well, we know that even can happen, but with God, it's so different. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then he gives us this image of how well he remembers us. I have engraven you in the palms of my hands. Um, Margaret Hutchison, who um, was writing about how, how to care for people, she told a story of an elderly lady suffering from dementia and she was pacing the corridors of the nursing home restlessly and she was repeating over and over again just, just one word and the staff were all concerned. They didn't know how to calm her down and they didn't know how to put her mind at rest. And the two, the word that she was repeating over and over again was God, God, God. She was just walking around the corridor repeating that to herself and one day, a nurse got alongside her and walked with her up and down the corridors, trying to understand what's going on. And finally, she said to her, she said, are you afraid that you will forget God? And the lady said, yes, yes. And the nurse replied, you know that even if you should forget God, he will not forget you. He has promised that. And the lady's countenance changed, and she had peace in that moment. That assurance was what she needed to hear. It may have not lasted for long, but it's nonetheless true and comforting. Um, ending your days in a situation where people don't understand the deepest things going on inside of you, which is what dementia often presents, um, the things that are important to you, not remembering those, that's a frightening thought. And yet, the deep fear of forgetting is overcome by the deeper promise of being remembered. Isn't that amazing? Our confidence today when we take the Lord's Supper is not going to be that we will remember what Jesus has done for us, but that God will remember us and what Jesus has done for us. <clears throat>
um, Christine Bryden is a Christian lady who wrote about her experience. She was learning of her diagnosis of pre-senile dementia, so cognitively still highly functioning, but knowing that would not always be the case. And she wrote beautifully of these things as she addressed the question, will she know God when she can remember no longer? And she says, as I unfold before God, as this, un as this disease unwraps me, opens up the treasures of what lies within my multifold personality, I can feel safe as each layer is gently opened out. God's everlasting arms will be beneath me, upholding me. I will trust in God who will hold me safe in his memory until that glorious day of resurrection when each facet of my personality, self, can be expressed to the full. I think that's a beautiful way to think about these things. Um, Swinton summarizes it. We can and should mourn our personal loss of memory. That is blue light. And as those who are caregivers and have loved ones who are losing their memory, we can empathize and care in that difficulty. But if God remembers us, we are provided with a source of deep and enduring hope. And so it's both loss and hope. Um, another good quote, but we need to move on. Let's think then for the remaining moments then of how we can be people who care well, who know these things. I think these things can be helpful for us in the fears we may have of this situation for ourselves or for those we love. Um, but it also gives us categories by which to view our love for other people. Um, Swinton has many ways we can think about caring for those who experience dementia. But really, it could just boil down to a few things. It boils down to seeing the dignity of those who can no longer remember. Of, of choosing to say, wait a minute, this is still a person, and a person created in the image of God, and therefore glory remains, dignity remains, um, even though our experience of it and their experience of it is changing. And this is often shown by being present with them as we're able to do. Now, I know that gets very complicated in assisted care, and there's all kinds of things. Please don't hear me in any way saying, you need to be the one who is present with a loved one all the way through. None of us can bear all of that. That, that has to be worked out in wisdom. But we can learn to be people who are friends of time and who learn the importance of personal presence, even when that presence is no longer remembered. Um, we can hold their name and we can hold their memory well, even when they can't. John Golden Gay is a professor of Old Testament at Fuller. I, I don't know if he's since retired. And John Swinton was listening to some lectures that he gave on the authority of the Bible. And at the beginning of one of the lectures, it was just kind of this, this offhand uh, announcement for the class where John Golden Gay gave an invitation for his students to join him and his wife, Anne, for pancakes at their home the following week. And Anne, if you know anything about John Golden Gay's story, um, she had severe multiple sclerosis, was significantly disabled. She has since gone home to be with the Lord. And she, even at, at that time, had lost the ability to speak and to move. And Golden Gay, as he was explaining, hey, come to uh, our house for pancakes. He informed the students that she probably wouldn't recognize them, even if they'd seen her before, and she probably wouldn't remember them. But he urged them to take time to speak with her just the same. Um, not to avoid her. And here's what he said. Um, Don't fail me now. She probably won't remember you afterwards, but in that moment, she will appreciate you. There's something that takes place between two image bearers when we see, when we know their name, when we hold them in our presence and hold their memories for them. Studies have shown that people with dementia are far less visited than people with all sorts of other chronic conditions. A lot of times if people have a chronic condition, family members feel a sense of obligation even, and that can be a good thing, to continue to be with them. Um, and often at the root of this is we're not sure what good it does if they can't remember the exchange. 
That's a really hard thing, right? Um, I think if we think about that at its root, it's a bit utilitarian. It's probably too small of a view of love. And part of what we've been talking about today is that God's love and God's remembering and God's care is far less interested in in what it gets and even of our awareness of it in the present. And that's what he's supernaturally enabling us to give to another. Changing love is still love. Um, As the condition of dementia continues, the person's ability to relate change and may even seem to altogether disappear. We don't always know exactly what all is going on. Science tells us some things about what's happening in brains, but we are very profoundly integrated with our thought processes. Our understanding and practice of love changes as well. And it's important to see that these are not less authentic acts of love, even though they may feel so much smaller. Um, They are different. And this is hard. We lament the loss of learning what it is to love by simply bathing one with whom you were once a partner and shared thoughts and desires and cares, who now sees you as a stranger. It's hard to realize that your role now is primarily caregiver than a partner or member of the same team as you share these things together. But Swinton says that the key to to this is to think about what this new love can look like. And at its core, it really goes back to finding ways that we can say this. This is really what love affirms, I think. It is good that you exist. It is good that you are in this world. Only a robust view of image bearing says that. We've heard what was said before, right? About you're just a drain and you're, you're just a burden on everyone. Love is the ability to say as one who's created in, in the image of God, you are still alive and it is good that you exist and good that you're in this world. Um, we talked last week about seeing beauty in the different stages of life, right? And there's the blue light of glory that's lost. There's the green light of glory that remains. There's the red light of glory that's being gained by God's work. This is an exercise again in the green light seeing of glory that's there that often gets tabled as of a lesser glory. As those created in the image of God, given the mandate to care for creation, that's what those to keep and to guard really are kind of getting at, caring for creation together. We as people are those who both care and are cared for. We're always being cared for by God. It's part of what it means to be a creature. And at various times in our lives, we are caring for others in various ways. With dementia, the caring for others may diminish more and more into blue light, but the green light of an image bearer who is being cared for is still a glorious thing. It testifies to us of God's love that goes far beyond our own. And it also shows us a redemptive aspect of what he's doing in us, how he's helping us experience the glory of being made in his image as we care for one who can give us far less in return. Um, As creatures, we are both independent as an I, and we are also dependent always upon God for our very breath. As we progress through stages of dementia and aging, blue light of independence is often, it's diminishing, right? The, The blue light's growing stronger. But there's also a corresponding green light of the person who's still expressing what it means to be made in the image of God as those who, like all of us, are actually completely dependent on him for everything, every moment of every day. We're just seeing it put on display in a way that we usually don't think about. As people, we are both body and soul, embodied souls together, um, inner and outer brought together in a profound way. As dementia and aging go on, often what's going on inwardly is less available and accessible to us. We don't really know what else is going on. I just think we need to be humble about it. Um, But what is still shining in green light 
is a person's body that also is a part of who they are. And the menial tasks of caring for another's body in the most servant-like ways is an acclamation of that person's dignity and that they are still an image bearer. And it reminds us that their body matters so much to God that he's going to raise it up in glorified form so they can be them forever uh, themselves. And so it puts more emphasis maybe on a part of our personhood. The last one that I'll, I'll mention is this. Um, as those who are image bearers, our experience of life is both being known, being known perfectly by God, and also the experience of being a stranger in many ways. Um, we'll talk about this maybe more next week in the sermon about God's welcome. But part of our experience is going from stranger to welcomed to stranger to welcomed as we move in and out of social contexts and things like that. God's knowing of us never changes. And God is a God who loves strangers and embraces us and welcomes us as the strangers that we are, as his creatures. And as the blue light of strangeness of one we once knew in a different way, as that grows, there's also green light there of the fact that we are made in the image of a God who can still extend welcome to those who may now feel like a stranger to us. And that one day all the strangerness will be gone. Um, and so the light changes and it changes drastically um, when we think about cognitive disabilities declining. Um, I just have a note here to mention caregivers and that part of how we can become a community of care is really understanding how difficult that is for the person who's not experiencing it to walk with their loved one through that. And so please hear this caveat. Everything I'm saying about we're still persons and we're not just our memory and we're not just ourselves. that doesn't mean that if someone says it just feels like they're not there anymore or I just feel like I don't even know who they are, that that's, that's wrong ontologically. No, that's completely fine in the experience and the lament of it. We move close in that, but we also know that there are bigger things that give us hope in the lament. Swinton closes the book, and therefore I'll close this, by reflecting on how he would want someone to treat him if he had dementia. And he says this, I may forget who I am. Others may want to name me as a dementia sufferer and act accordingly. And by that, he means just reduce us to a diagnosis and put everything through the lens of just impaired cognition. People can ignore me and fail to see what my changing me looks like. They can fail to see what it looks like to communicate with me as I lose my ability, if not my desire, to communicate. But you can still hold me well. Darcy said, maybe you could just get a reader for this class, like someone who would just jump in. I think I got it. You can hold me in my past by remembering my story and respecting what I have been. You can hold me in the present as you take time to notice me and remember what the future really is for me. Um, I think that's a, a beautiful picture of this. You can hold me in a possible future where at minimum I can trust that you will continue to love me and not forget me. Um, that ministry of presence and love and care even though far different, is still something um, to God. Um, let me just close with this. I, I had it here just in case. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a poem. He wrote lots of poems. It's cool. Uh, it ended this way. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. This is part of the human experience. Who am I? Whoever I am. Thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That's where we find our comfort. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find our meaning. That's where we find our ability to move towards others in love. God knows who we are, and he has promised to remember, which means we will exist and one day come to experience who he made us to be. Um, 
So that's a beautiful thought. Let me uh, pray. Our Heavenly Father, these things are beyond us in so many ways. We throw ourselves down in creaturely humility of how little we know, but also we marvel at how greatly you love. We pray that you would help us to see and trust that more and more and give us an ability in the messiness, the blueness of this life to be able to show that heavenly love in all the ways that you show it to us. We know that this is what you are at work doing in us as your people by your spirit, as you have poured your love into our hearts. And we pray that it would grow more and more as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus after all he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray.